You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app. Today, mixed feelings as locals in Gippsland weigh up the benefits of Australia's first offshore wind farm. It's a tough one, but at the end of the day, I would go with approving having those offshore wind farms. Uh, I know that they're not a great look, uh, I get that, but you've got to weigh that against the disadvantages of um, fossil fuels. And immersing young nurses on country in the hope they'll return to work in remote communities. It's been really eye-opening to be able to like go to, you know, like remote Aboriginal communities like Kalumbaru, like on on a plane, like it's that remote. Kind of the reality of the people that live here is so different to the people that that live in Perth. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country. Let's kick off today with some good news. Doctors and senior nurses could get their university debt or help debt paid off if they work out bush after graduating. New Commonwealth legislation proposes paying off doctors and senior nurses loans if they work in hospitals and practices in the country. Just so you know, one of the ways to become a senior nurse is to complete a lengthy Masters of Nursing. Education reporter Gabriella Marchand has this story. Now, Gabriella, given the rising cost of universities, it's a big carrot to dangle for students. When you've spoken to them, what do they have to say? Was it enough to lure them to the bush? It will surprise no one, Sinead, that lots of the medical students we spoke to said, yes, this would be a carrot because um, one of the young students that we spoke to, I think she was in third year, she said she was already at over $100,000 for her student loan. I think she was post-grad, so it's, um, she has been studying a bit longer. But yeah, lots of these, particularly medical students, have very significant loans. And lots of them said that this would be a very significant factor in maybe them considering moving to the country, even if it's not, you know, for years and years and years to, to go there forever, at least considering it and then seeing what happens. So yeah, I think it does seem to be something that is resonating with students. You've spoken to medical student Babylon Gill. Let's hear what she had to say. Graduating and having no hex is such a privilege and I think um, it's such a great incentive that lots of students or newly graduates would also like to um, be a part of. The Rural Doctors Association have been pushing for initiatives to encourage people to work out bush for some time. Do they think this will put enough of a dent in the problem? Yes, yeah, Sinead, they certainly have welcomed it. You know, um, they say that, of course, this is not a silver bullet. It's part of a suite of measures, some of which already exist and some of which they're pushing for. Um, but um, the the association did say that they think this will have a really big impact on those early career doctors and getting them to make that decision and then potentially, you know, life happens and, and a few years can go by quite quickly. You've made friends in the community and that sort of thing. You know, they said um, it's going to be very hard to move established doctors who are halfway through their career doing really well in the city. It's very hard to get them to move to the country. But for for, for young people who are in the early parts of their career making some decisions about how they're going to set themselves up, they have really welcomed this this decision. So, yeah, they seem to think it will make a difference. For students and their parents who might be listening, can you tell us how the plan actually works? 
Yeah, it's a bit complicated, but basically what it, it is is um, the the debt gets repaid by the government and more gets more debt gets repaid based on how long um, a, stu- a graduate stays in a community and how remote that community is. So, for example, if um, a student moved to a very remote or remote community, they if they stayed in that community for half the duration of their qualification, they would get their entire debt repaid, which is pretty good. Um, now, if you are in a bit of a less remote area, say like a rural town or maybe even a regional centre, um, you would have to work. Uh, you would have to sorry uh, work there for um, the entirety of your duration of your qualification to get your entire help debt um, repaid. If you if you worked there for half the time, you would only get half of your help debt repaid. So there's there's a few differences, but basically it does mean that if you work there for a certain period of time, you will get, you know, significant proportions, as you say, nearly 50 grand or 100 grand of your debt paid off by the government. And this is at the legislative, you know, it's a proposal at this stage. Do they expect there will be bipartisan support for it? Well, I haven't spoken to the opposition about this, but I would have to suspect that they would support it given that they came up with this plan and mm. they actually previously introduced it um, in the coalition government, introduced it when they were in government, um, but it never it never really moved through parliament and the bill sort of um, just sat there. So what this government has done is said, oh, this is a good idea. They've reintroduced it in parliament and they ha- they say they're very keen to kind of push this through. So it would be a surprise if the, if the coalition um, voted against it given they came up with the plan. Not everyone you spoke to were pro this plan, this idea of wiping out debt like that. What were their concerns about it? Yeah, I spoke to one expert. His concern was just that if you're only wiping out student debt, it's not using your money to sort of target the biggest pool of possible um, workers. So he, he said, you know, people like migrants who might have come over, might not have gone to university in Australia, um, they might not have a, um, a debt with the Australian government and they could, you know, really use some support and, and potentially move to the country as well. So um, he was sort of saying some of the existing measures that encourage doctors to move to the country, things like being able to bill higher on Medicare, maybe that money would be better spent beefing up those things that would apply to everyone as opposed to kind of targeting in in quite such a narrow way. ABC Education reporter Gabriella Merchant, thanks for talking to Australia Wide. No worries, Sinead, thank you. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Let's, let's go to the East Kimberley region, like others, that is struggling with a huge shortage of permanent health workers. The issue means hospitals have to rely heavily on expensive and transient doctors and nurses and other professionals who fill in for a short time and then leave. Experts say that's not ideal in a region where many Indigenous people live with chronic and third world diseases. So universities are looking to immerse more students in remote parts of Australia so that one day these valuable professionals might choose to lay down roots in these far-flung communities. The opportunity could be made even more attractive to students if legislation to wipe university debt is passed through Parliament. Here's Ted O'Connor in Connanera. So good. Yeah, I was so surprised. A group of aspiring nurses and their supervisor cool their feet in a resort pool. It's the build-up in Kununurra, which means it's just shy of 34 degrees at four o'clock in the afternoon. These young students are on a three-week placement to learn about what it's like to be a nurse in a remote location. Their favourite day so far involved flying to Western Australia's northernmost community, Columbaroo, 
to provide education about renal diseases. Mariam Adaram says it was life-changing. It's been amazing. Yeah, it's been like incredible to, it's been really eye-opening to be able to like go to, you know, like remote Aboriginal communities like Kalumbaru, like on, on a plane, like it's that remote. Kind of the reality of the people that live here is so different to the people that, that live in Perth. Many people in Kalumbaru live in poverty and doctors fly in and out. Mariam says her upbringing in Africa has helped her understand the wealth and health gap between Indigenous and mainstream Australians. Because I was in Uganda, like I know that, like what privilege actually means, like how privileged we are in Australia, but also how, how much more privileged some Australians are than others. Like something that's very necessary for nurses to have is like, like a very high level of empathy, especially like just working with people from so many different backgrounds. Like Mariam, Sahar Abisi is a second year nursing student at Edith Cowan University in Perth. The 21 year old knows what it's like to navigate a new culture. Sahar spoke Farsi and Dari when she moved to Australia seven years ago and immediately strived to master English. She says she can appreciate what it's like for many Indigenous people in this part of the world who struggle to navigate a modern bureaucratic health system. Because I'm a second language and it was um, really hard for me to um, get into like new culture and understand like people, I think um, in here um, when I saw uh, Aboriginal people, uh, I had the same connection that they're kind of like second language as me and it's hard for them to understand like this situation, the language or like how health is run in Australia. Both nurses say the past three weeks have laid the groundwork for them to return to the Kimberley when they are qualified and perhaps even live here in the long term. Their supervisor, Liesl Dowling, says that's the aim of these placements. She's a clinical facilitator at Marjolin Kimberley Centre for Remote Health. It's one of 16 nationwide Commonwealth-funded university departments which give aspiring health workers a taste of working in a rural or remote location. When we come into a remote region and we um, can actually see um, that there is poverty, that there is a difference in health, that there are barriers to uptake. It becomes a part of your lived experience and it becomes a concern to you, typically speaking. It's okay to read about the barriers to um, uptake in healthcare, the, the differences, the gap in outcomes between Aboriginal Australians and mainstream. It's all really words on paper till you really see it and experience it. The Kimberleys long cried out for more permanent health workers and in recent years staff shortages, especially involving nurses, have been crippling. WA Country Health Service said in its most recent annual report that an increasing reliance on expensive and transient locums and agency staff was to blame for higher costs across the state. Liesl Dowling says the immersion of young health workers in a remote setting helps address that issue. We have a transient workforce which is problematic in healthcare. It does pose some um, barriers and some risks in delivering healthcare because you don't have that knowledge at the ground level to facilitate care. So to bring that transience level down um, is an important part of the health strategy. The challenges of working in the Kimberley were highlighted during the pandemic. Crucial staff left the region fed up over workplace culture conditions and high rates of youth crime. But Isabel Morton says her eight-week speech pathology placement at Kununurra Hospital has revealed some advantages over working in the city. Here 
I would be able to get to do everything so I could see some kids doing speech and language and then go on the wards and see some adults for swallowing issues. I really like the sense of community. Um, working in the allied health team, everyone's really supportive of each other and we all work together and they all have very good friendships that like we all eat lunch together and they meet up on weekends. Yeah, I didn't think I wanted to work rurally, um, but after only being here for two and a half weeks, I'm really enjoying it. And so I actually am very much considering taking on a rural position next year. Yeah, I was like, we're coming to five. Isabel Morton ending Ted O'Connor's report there from Kununurra in Western Australia. This is ABC Australia Wide. Let's head to Gippsland in Victoria, where plans are going ahead for the development of Australia's biggest wind turbine farm that will sit 25 k's offshore in the Bass Strait. Star of the South, as it's called, has released its most detailed artist's impression of what this massive project will look like for residents of the area. And when you look at the pictures, you can see on the horizon massive turbines that are way beyond the break. Our reporter, Natasha Sharpova, spoke to the people on the beach to see what they made of it. The offshore wind turbines for me cause concern because we, we walk on this beach and I've already seen, um, you know, a scummy looking Um, foam coming on. My concern is if they put the turbines in there, if a turbine drops one drop of oil a day, that's going to add up. We're going to pollute our oceans. I mean, we're we're saying we've dug such big holes for the coal, you know, I don't know what the reclamation's ever going to be on something like that or how they're going to manage that. We've destroyed the land, now we're going to destroy the water putting things out there. I just, yeah... Well, look, I reckon it's uh, one of those controversial things that's got arguments each way, so it's a tough one. But at the end of the day, I would go with approving having those offshore wind farms. Uh, I know that they're not a great look. Uh, I love the outdoors and the beach myself, so spoil the look a little bit. Uh, I get that. But you've got to weigh that against the disadvantages of um, fossil fuels, what's happening with emissions and those other alternatives. So I think we've really got to try and think about going sustainable. I know my parents can see the coastline and they're pretty pro it. Um, And on top of that, I am a parent. I've got young children. Um, I just think that um, in the world we live in now, and some of the environmental issues that we've got going on, we, we need to transition to different kinds of energy and renewable systems, um, probably just really out of an obligation for our kids, their kids. Um, yeah, I think most of the time people who are anti it probably have um, maybe a vested interest or, or they're concerned about the impact to them individually. But yeah, I think we've got to move beyond that. Mixed opinions there from Woodside Beach. Bradley Jorgensen is a professor of psychology at La Trobe University and he specialises in environmental psychology and behaviour change. Dr Jorgensen, can you explain what exactly that is? Uh, well, environmental psychology covers a wide area, but it uh, it looks at people's uh, well, human environment interactions. So it can be the built environment or the natural environment. And it looks at how um, those environments actually shape who we are and shape our behaviour. We're hearing there from people on Woodside Beach, obviously a strong connection to the beach there. In terms of their response to what would be massive change to their environment, what do you make of those responses? 
Uh, well, to tell you the truth, Sinead, I didn't hear anything there that um, I haven't heard before. Um, we uh, in environmental psychology uh, look at uh, uh, situations like Gippsland uh, through a frame called sense of place, which really just means the way that people think about a place or the beliefs they have about it. It's a good place to go fishing. It's a great place to raise a family. Um, it's a very beautiful place with lot, lots of natural values, <clears throat> but also their emotional connection. You know, they love the place, they're excited by it or they're relaxed by it. Um, you could also be frightened by a particular environment as well. And also a behavioural part as well, which says, okay, well, what are the sorts of activities that people do in this place, the places they define it? Um, and it might be the best place for doing the things that they really love to do the most. So um, by looking at people's relationship with places, we start to find out what sorts of things are likely to be acceptable to them and what sorts of developments are not, uh, are not going to meet with uh, success. Do you think it's in our nature to resist change like this because it makes us feel uncomfortable, the idea of these wind turbines off the coast, something that we're not used to seeing when we look out to the ocean, is it, you know, is it in our nature to go, hang on, I'm not sure about that? Because we did hear one woman say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it in our nature? I'm not sure it's in our nature. Um, I, have a, I have a pretty uh, open and encompassing view of the human conditions, which I won't <laughs> bore you with. Um, but I think um, that if if you're living on a on a on a natural lake somewhere um, and uh, you love the serenity of that lake, you love the fact that there's not too many people about it, you get an opportunity to commune with nature and you do the things you really love to do, which is floating around on your back in the lake and maybe reading a book after you get out of the water. Someone else who's living on that lake is going, gosh, this place is beautiful, but it's so boring. Um, I wish we had more people here um, and maybe even a tavern where we could go and get food and have something to drink and meet people. So um, if change was to come about um, you could, uh, and there's got to be more shoreline development on that lake, one person's going to go, hey, this is a good thing. And the other person's going to fear it with, <laughs> with every fibre of their existence. But how do, you get, how do you ever reconcile the two? Because we're hearing opposite opinions there when it comes to this big yep. project. Uh, how do you reconcile positions where the, they resemble being pregnant or not pregnant? There's no middle ground. Um, and that's what these consultation processes are designed to do if they're good. It's to be able to bring people in, be able to give them an opportunity to learn for themselves about the things that they're uh, that, that they see as being important, hearing other people's viewpoints that are perhaps in opposition of theirs and seeing how they're looking at the project. Um, and so you bring people along and, and you focus not on the outcome, you focus on how good the process is in enabling people who have an interest in this project to be involved and to learn about it. Uh, on their own terms, not as a public relations exercise where my job is to convince you that this is a great idea. Bradley Jorgensen, Professor of Psychology at La Trobe University. Thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. You're welcome, Sinead. Thanks for the invitation. ABC Australia Wide. 
Today, Australians pause to remember the service men and women who made, died in war and peacekeeping operations. The trauma for many, however, continues when they return home, with more than 1,200 veterans taking their own lives over the past 20 years. An association on the Gold Coast is leading the way in a holistic approach to veteran welfare. Nicole Dyer has the story. On a picture-perfect Gold Coast day, a group of veterans are gathered on the bottom floor of a building overlooking the beach. It's part of a five-day retreat at Rainbow Bay to recharge their batteries and learn how to be a peer mentor. Organised by the Veterans Care Association, led by Padre Gary Stone. We are a group of veterans have set about on a mission to raise the health and well-being of the veteran community by holistic health education and, and by peer mentoring. Most of the team is gathered here at the moment. We've got a team of about uh, 30 volunteers. We went through some difficult times. I had many deployments overseas. And uh, you know, at age 17, I joined the military, uh, Royal Military College Duntroon and served a career as an infantry officer. Then towards the end of that time, I was asked if I would become a chaplain. And I retired from that in, uh, at age 65. Well, in fact, towards the end of that, we started this Veterans Care Association because we had just had so many veterans that were traumatised and current range of service weren't providing um, their particular needs. You know, the, the broadly the medical system in Australia is uh, focused on sickness rather than wellness. Just from our own experience of, of having to go through cognitive behaviour therapy and trauma-focused therapy, we, we weren't getting... And medication was the worst one. We put us on medication to sort of knock you out and we came to realise that by educating veterans on how they can holistically nurture their bodies, nurture their minds, nurture their souls, nurture their relationships and find a positive life purpose that they could get healthier than just naturally. Veteran David Freeman's been so inspired by these retreats, he now teaches organic gardening to veterans at his farm in the Gold Coast hinterland. I was medically discharged nine years ago, and then when Gary started running these veterans' care workshops, he and his uh, son Michael rang me and said, do you mind if we bring up some veterans, and can you do the David Freeman special two-hour, and then we turned into a four-hour, where we would walk around and I'd give them what I call organic gardening 101 but then there was circle time and I would then speak genuinely from the heart of my trauma and why the farm was my salvation. Like Gary he's gone to 10 acres on tambourine and I've gone I've gravitated back to my family farm because nature is salvation for us because anyone who's been through trauma we don't do well with crowds we don't like noise or city if you can do nature bathing like the Japanese do if you're within nature it's very calming and that's why I discussed with Gary on about one of the second or third courses. I said, wouldn't it be a good idea if I could build this veterans organic garden? Veterans come up, I give them a crash course on how to grow their own food because what I've discovered, Nicole, through all my studies is that basically the supermarket fruit and vegetables you're buying has no nutrition. When you can grow it on rich volcanic soils like Gary and I have, we can grow food that is 10 times more nutrient dense and it's just pure science. It's Gut health leads to better mental health. Very nice to meet you all collectively. Hi, also at the retreat, Dr John Barletto, who works from a positive psychology model. Some of these people have been engaged in the program as recipients, if you like. Many, most of these have come back as peers or mentors or you know, part of the tribe doing the ongoing support. This is their opportunity to come and get their shot in the arm, getting close to the Christmas period. And so what they've been giving and being in the service of others, this is their time, if you like, to get. And they so they've been, they will be here for something like five days. And so it's sort of like this meta thing that we're doing, and I'm giving them opportunities to rest, not very much, certainly some time to reflect and some growth and development stuff, but really in that, you know, psychology space, uh, some spirituality space. And, you know, because of their lived experiences and their, their overlap, they, 
They speak the same language. They have similar backgrounds. So, John, why are you here today? Being with these people who are all giving is a warm experience and it encourages me to go back and, and do more for people that I know could do with some help. Katie, can you tell me why you've come here today? Similar to what John was saying, it's just an amazing group of people to be around. It's that like-mindedness. I came just to be back with the tribe again. It re-energises me every time. It's just been absolutely gold what Dr Barlett has been sharing with us because we are are peer mentors. We're here to support veterans and family members and anyone else in the community. And the more we can learn and energise ourselves and we can give back, that's what it's all about. Padraig, Gary Stone again. It's going to be up to the government as to whether they're going to fund a wellness solution to the veteran situation as opposed to the, the treatment solution. Which in any case, we're, we're just doing this because we chose the name Veterans Care because we are veterans who care. We didn't go to war to make war. We went to war to bring about peace. And the mission continues after, after we get out of uniform. And for veterans that have uh, unfortunately been given that nomenclature totally and permanently incapacitated, which is, which is a medical classification that DVA gives a lot of us, yeah, that can be very disabling as well. I mean, we encourage the veterans to take on a new identity of being a veteran and, and being a veteran carer and being a veteran mentor. That's incredibly empowering for them. With, with every program we run, we try to help the veteran identify where they can help make a positive difference in the veteran community. What an incredible bunch of people. Nicole Dwyer reporting there from the Gold Coast. And that's all from the Australia-wide team, Alex, Alex Hyman and I, for this week. I hope you have a lovely weekend. Cheerio. This is an ABC podcast.